Romans chapter 1. We've been hearing the impact of the gospel on a number of lives here this morning. And I want to, in my uh, time with you now, underline what is the essence of the gospel. And here, just in these first seven verses, I'm reading what Paul has to say about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the NASB. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of hearing these testimonies of your kindness, your favour, your ability to put people's lives back together again, cleanse them from their guilt and shame, give them a new start. We thank you, Jesus. We honour you today, that one who has conquered death for us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you right now, please, to be our teacher. Will you let us hear your voice? Will you communicate beyond anything that I say, I pray? Pray for especially any who perhaps feel far from you this morning, who feel almost like an observer of what's taking place, that you will come and speak and make what is said clear and real. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've seen that famous uh, photograph of the Blitz in London where clouds of smoke everywhere and things falling as bombs are dropping in London. And yet in the centre you see this magnificent St. Paul's Cathedral. You see this dome standing, kind of just secure and stable. It's quite extraordinary, the cross on top of it. And there in the midst of everything falling, about, falling down is this superb, uh, wonderful expression somehow of Christianity, St. Paul's Cathedral. Well, of course, this epistle... Uh, written by the man that that cathedral commemorates, Paul. And many would argue that Romans is like uh, that, uh, that symbol somehow. It stands, stood down through the centuries. Romans may be the clearest statement of what Christianity is all about. Uh, Tyndale, who first translated the Bible, one of the first people to put the Bible into English, said this, this is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, the book of Romans. And here in these just these few verses, 
Uh, Paul begins to open up what the gospel is about. It's rather like an overture, when sometimes you hear an overture of a magnificent piece of music, and some of the melodies are just put together in that overture. Later they'll be developed in all their fullness, but you just get a hint and a feel of the melodies that are yet to come. So, in these first few verses, you get some of the central themes that he will spend a whole letter or several chapters opening up to us. But here we're going to look at the wonderful of gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's very easy to get confused as to what Christianity is in our day and generation. I sometimes listen, as I did this morning, uh, to the Sunday program on BBC. I listen to today, most days of the week on BBC4. And on Sunday, they have the Sunday program. And I think I do it probably just to get furious just to, just to get stirred up and think, no, no, it's not that, no, no, no. So often, uh, we're told by these programs what Christians ought to be doing, um, this, they ought to be doing this, they should be doing more of that, and the church should be there. And the confusion about what is the gospel? What is Christianity all about, actually, is very real. There's huge confusion. So it'd be great for us to try and nail what the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle, is saying, this is what the gospel is. This is what it actually is all about. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. He says, it's the gospel, that's good news, that's what it means. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've heard it yet. I wonder if you've heard the good news about Jesus Christ. I could have given my testimony that I didn't know that good news until my sister came home one Saturday evening and said, I've become a Christian. I said, we're all Christians, aren't we? So she said, no, I've been born again. I said, what does that mean? I've never heard that before. She said, I know all my sins are forgiven. I know I'm going to heaven. I thought, come on. No one can know things like that. And then she began to talk to me. And it wasn't a stranger. It wasn't some religious, crazy person at the door. It was my sister. I've known her for years. And she's so changed, and she's so peaceful and happy and kind of together. And she starts telling me about how you can know your sins are forgiven, how you can know that Jesus has done everything needful. And as I'm beginning to listen, and it's beginning to dawn on me, this is true. And at the end of that evening, that very evening, I knelt down and asked Christ to come into my life and felt it happen. I always think when we sing that famous old hymn, and it's got that line, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I always go back in my imagination to that day when I prayed that prayer. I thought, yes, Lord, it happened. You did it for me. You did it for me. I remember thinking, why hasn't anybody ever told me this before? How come we don't already know it? It's good news about Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've heard the good news yet. You may know somebody religious, You may have been invited. Will you come along this morning to see the baptisms? But I wonder if you've heard what the news is. Well, it's about Jesus Christ. I want to look at the four things that Paul says in these opening remarks. The first thing he says is this. It was promised long time ago. Verse 2. It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It has been promised in advance. Okay, Now, obviously, if God's going to do something of magnificent proportion, it's not surprising that in advance he would warn us it's going to happen. God was going to speak, God was going to act in human history, and so he warned in advance 
that is going to happen. I'm going to speak, I'm going to act. And that's what we call our Old Testament. The Old Testament is telling us about what's going to happen when Jesus comes. And of course this is the greatest event in world history. We count our, our years, we're at 2008 years since Christ, before, is before Christ. This is the greatest event in world history. We're talking not about some little religious thing, we're talking about the biggest thing that's ever happened in the world. The coming of the Son of God. We count our years from then. And it was warned in advance. In advance, God said he would act. He had to interrupt, if you like, human history. Why? Well, because God, having made man, saw man turn away from him. That man, instead of honouring the God who had made him, began to turn away and honour other things, began to despise God, began to question his existence, and God had to break in. God had to step in and put right. It says in Romans 1, if we read on from where I stopped, in verse 21 it says, even though they knew God, they didn't honour him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what Paul is saying. That's what's happened to the human race. That instead of honouring God, instead of respecting the Creator, taking Him seriously, saying, thank you, Lord, for that magnificent sunset last night. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the beauty of all these things. Instead of that, we became fools, professing to be wise, professing to know better, professing to have a better explanation. One of the latest professors, uh, Professor Richard Dawkins, in his God Delusion, he professes to be wiser, and he says this, the universe, we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. And so here's a professor at Oxford University whose book, The God Delusion, has sold many, many copies over, a big talking point. He is saying, there's nothing good or evil. It's just your DNA. You just dance to its music. There is no rhyme or reason to life. We're just here. It's a kind of accident, explosive accident. We evolved from that. And why should you expect good or evil? There is no good or evil. And yet it's a strange deal that when you read your paper, as I looked at it yesterday, and I see this man took his daughter, hid her in a, 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 a basement under his home, raped her, had children with her that he didn't even let get out of the house, and something inside this, that is so evil. When you read, as I did recently, or you may have done a few months ago, of someone who fell in the street in London and when she fell, her head hit the curbstone and she was dying and some boys came by and one guy stopped and urinated on her as she's dying. That was in our press and our news. You think, oh, that's terrible! But Dawkins says, no, there is no evil. There's no good, there's no evil. We're just dancing to our DNA. So why is it, if there's no good or evil, that the normal person thinks, that's terrible? What about Hitler? What about Stalin? What about Mao Zedong? 
killing millions of people. Oh no, he's just dancing through his DNA. There's neither good nor evil. Why is it then that we human beings feel such revulsion? Why do we feel that's terrible? That should never, ever happen. How can that be allowed? Why do we feel that? Why is that instinct? Why are all the best-selling books and plays that come down through the centuries, whether we talk about Dickens or Shakespeare, they turn on issues of conscience, right or wrong, hidden things that get uncovered. Oh, that's it. Why do we get excited about stories? They have conscience, good, evil, heroes, bad people. No, no, no. Professor Dawkins would profess there is no good or evil. Why do we feel outraged then? Why do we feel so different? I want to suggest to you that professing to be wise, he becomes a fool. The human race that says, no, no, there is no God, there's no ethical value, has certainly got it wrong. And so in Romans chapter 1, and if we had time we'd read the whole thing through, we'd see, no, no, man has terribly lost his way terribly lost his way. He's lost the plot. And God has an answer. And God began with his answer, as we read in here, he told us long ago, he started with a man called Abraham, right? Abraham was a pagan, he was a worshipper of idols, as were his parents before him, and God came to this one man and said to him, through you and your seed, that is your family, your descendants, I am going to bless the whole world. I'm going to start the ball rolling. I'm going to start a story within history that will ultimately be the conclusion to the problem and bring about the answer. I will start with you. Abraham started with one man. He had a son called Isaac, who in turn had a son called Jacob, who had 12 sons. And so the family began to grow. These are famous stories. One of his 12 sons was Joseph. And uh, Joseph had an amazing technicolour dream coat. Hence, there's not only St. Paul's Cathedral, but there's a great show in the West End celebrating Joseph and his amazing technicolour dream coat. These stories are well known. This is rooted back in what's happened in history. Joseph went down to Egypt. These people were taken into Egypt, what became a growing nation. It was 70 in a large family that went down and that 70 became 2 million over some years while they were slaves in Egypt. And then out of slavery comes Moses. Moses rescues them. And we all know about Moses. We know there are uh, Hollywood movies also about Moses and how they took them out from slavery, rescued them from that place and took them on into a promised land. Took them into Canaan or what is now seen as modern Israel. These are substantial histories. You see, sometimes Christianity is told as though it's about well, just being kind to your neighbour, trying to do the right thing. It's just about moral, ethical issues. But actually, Christianity is rooted in history with real people who had real experiences that are there in your face. It's actually happened. Historically, took place. So after Moses comes Joshua, who takes them into the land. Joshua sees the walls of Jericho fall down, another famous story, and in the land they go. 
And then one last figure I want to bring to you from this Old Testament preparation is a man called David. And uh, I understand even now, I think uh, uh, our Prime Minister, or maybe it's uh, Obama, has been out in Israel recently, and uh, he's in the King David Hotel. I remember hearing on the news. King David, famous king, the most famous king of Israel. And he established Israel as a powerful nation. He was invincible in battle. As a boy, he took out Goliath. And we love that even now. Our sports pages, we love it. When Brighton beat Liverpool at Anfield, it was a David and Goliath story. Right? Always is. David and Goliath comes out from the sports pages. Because well, we all know that battle. It's history. It's knowledge. It's knowledge. We know about it. But he not only won a battle as a boy, he became a great king. The greatest king Israel ever knew. And not only did he become a great king, he pushed back the borders of Israel. It was never so great, never so magnificent, and he handed it over to his son Solomon. But there became, associated with David in particular, extraordinary prophecies. This Bible's full of prophecies, supernatural sayings, that God comes to someone and gives them words to say that then start happening. Things God says are going to happen, happen. And he says about this David that he will one day have a son. And this son will sit on his throne. And this son, this one who will come eventually, will also have a huge kingdom. But there's something extraordinary about this kingdom. It will break through all international barriers... And we sometimes hear these verses read out at Christmas time on the radio or at carol services when we read things like this or hear them said, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will rest on his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And he will sit on David's throne. So these are read out at Christmas. Why? Because they're speaking about this one who was to come and they're speaking of a kingdom that will be international and eternal. It's a kingdom that will go on forever and ever. So God is telling us in advance that a saviour will be sent. He will come through Abraham's line, through his family, and then when David comes on the scene, he will be like David. David was an anointed one anointed, and and the Holy Spirit anointed him, his son's going to be anointed, and the Hebrew word is Messiah. The Messiah, the anointed one is coming. This one God has promised will most certainly come. And this one will have a great kingdom, it will be ever increasing, and indeed it will provide an international eternal kingdom. That's what will happen. So we're obviously talking about somebody beyond the normal realm. We're not just talking about an effective man like Solomon. We're talking about someone extraordinary. Eternal kingdom, everlasting kingdom. It'll never stop. Keep on increasing. This one who will come will be amazing. That's the promise of the Old Testament. I mean, we could spend a lot longer, but that's a little run through the Old Testament. This, as Paul says, promised beforehand. Abraham will have a son. David, coming from that line, he will have a son. He will be an amazing, amazing king. 
And it's like God saying, I'm warning you in advance. He actually said this, he will be born in Bethlehem. That's what it says back in these ancient documents, back in the Old Testament. Remember when there, there was already a king, Herod, who was a crook. And when there was news, this baby's being born. He said, search the ancient scriptures. Where will he be born? They say, Bethlehem. He said, right, let's get down there and kill all the kids. It's, it's warned in advance. This is where it's going to happen. There's so many things. So you shouldn't miss it. So that one day when we stand before God, we can't say, oh, why didn't you tell us? Oh, he did tell us. Not only did he tell us, he proved it again and again and again. And this morning you're hearing about it. It's written centuries before so you would know. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be raised in Nazareth. It says so in here. Hundreds of years before it happened. So we know. So we're not, you know, we've got no excuse. Oh, Jesus, no rubbish. No, no, Hey, listen. In advance, he told us. So we haven't got an excuse. We have no excuse when we meet God one day. Because he told us in advance. He will be the son of Abraham. He will be the son of David. So perhaps we shouldn't be surprised when we open our New Testament and the very first verse in the New Testament, that's the, the part of the Bible that's written about Christianity. The Old Testament's written about Jewish roots, history. New Testament's written by different people about Christianity. It starts with this. Verse 1 of the New Testament. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, he's the one then. It's the one God said, son of Abraham, son of David. That's right, that's how it starts. You may have thought, why do I the Bible starts with this? Well, it's because the Old Testament has warned all along. That's the one to look for. So Jesus comes on the scene. And this Jesus, living in Nazareth, he has this extraordinary experience that when he is baptised, God's Spirit comes upon him in a phenomenal way, and God from heaven says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Even the phrases that are used are taken from the Old Testament. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. My spirit is even now coming upon him. And Jesus, the very first time he's invited to speak as a traveling rabbi, he goes into a synagogue, he opens the passage, the scroll is handed to the visiting rabbi, and he opens it and starts to read what we would call Isaiah uh, chapter 61. And he reads it and he says, reading it, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news. And he reads on the whole passage and then he says an amazing thing. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That doesn't often happen. You don't often read a bit of Bible and say, this is it. Now it is. If I did this here, if I now stood up here in Winchester and said, and I am, Terry Virgo, I am the Son of God. You see, Jesus, that day, he said, today, this is fulfilled. Today, he actually took that claim upon him. Not only that, he began to heal the sick. He began to gather vast, vast crowds. He began to demonstrate a life never, ever seen before. We're told that even his enemies were troubled by the way he was gaining ground. And at one time they, they took their soldiers and said, go and get him. And the soldiers went to get him and they're listening to him preach as they're standing there and, and they're listening and they're listening and 
they're listening. And then they go back. And they say, so where is he? And they say, no man ever spoke like this man. He speaks with authority, not like the scribes. He was amazing. Not only that, he healed so many people. It says at one point, he went up a mountain, some 7,000 people followed him. He healed them and taught them. They slept up on the top of the mountain. Woke up in the morning, he taught them some more, healed them some more. They slept again. Then the third day, it says, he healed them all. 7,000 people. In what we would call third world situation, blind and crippled and lame. And at the end of these three days, there's not one sick person left. And then at the end, he said to his disciples, let's feed them. And fed them all. And they say, wow. Because one of the things it says in the Old Testament about this one when he comes is he'll be like Moses. And Moses fed the thousands in the wilderness. That's how they interpreted it. They said, he's got to be the one. And so they tried to make him king. They tried to force it. Let's make him king. But Jesus wouldn't respond to that. But he was phenomenal. The religious leaders hated him because at one point, he's there, the crowds are pressing in. And they, they can't get in. So someone comes through the roof. And they let down this paralytic, completely paralyzed man. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. And then people say, hey, especially the Pharisees, the religious leaders who hated Jesus, they said, who do you think you are? You can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. What they really meant was this. If you want forgiveness, you come to us. Because we run the temple. And that's where you get forgiveness. You want to get forgiveness, you come to the temple, you buy a lamb from us. If you want to buy a lamb, we won't use your money. You better change your money to our temple money, because it's holy. You change your money to our temple money, buy a lamb from us, and then you can have him offered and sin can be provided. We run the temple. Actually, we've got God in our temple. We run it. And if you want mercy, you come to us. You want forgiveness? We handle forgiveness. We ha- we're God's representatives. We run the temple. The temple is the center of all religious life in Jesus' day. Everything circles around the temple. And here's Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Out in the street. And they say, how can you do such a thing? How outrageous. He says, in order that you might know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. Isn't that good news here this morning? The Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. He says, that you may know that, get up and walk. And the cripple gets up. And wow, the temple is in the street. God is accessible. You can get to God without paying these crooks and letting them rip you off in this religious market. God has come among men with mercy and forgiveness. God's breaking out. Jesus is among the people. And they so hate him, they say, let's kill him. We're going to kill him. We must destroy him. He'll destroy us if we don't destroy him. Now actually, Jesus himself said, no man takes my life from me. I have actually come to lay down my life. And when they tried to make him king, he said, no, no, no. I don't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. He uses ransom language. 
Again on the radio this morning, they're talking about we need a ransom for some of the guys that are being held in the Middle East. They're just saying, will you please, can we do some sort of swap to get us out? We're, we're in captivity here. And the Bible sees us, you and me, in captivity to our sadness, our sin. Some of the stories we heard here from people saying, my life went to pieces, I was heartbroken. We're, we're captive to things too big for us. And at root, our problem is our sin. We don't honour God. We'd rather hear someone say, no, there isn't a God, do what you like. But something in our heart is saying, well, if there is a God, who can help me? And Jesus said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. I've come to pay the price for you. I've come to lay down my life. No one takes it from me. In fact, the way Jesus was introduced when he first stepped on the scene was by a man called John the Baptist who said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how he was introduced. Jews understood this. You need a lamb. You need to kill a lamb. Let the blood flow. That's how they were taught. You need blood to be shed on your behalf. They'd learned that for centuries. Now comes the fulfilment of the Old Testament imagery. This is not just a dumb lamb. This is an intelligent man saying, I freely lay down my life. I give my life. He's not just a man. This is God who has become man, taking our place as a lamb in offering. In fact, we're told in Isaiah 53 that when he was crucified, he was marred more than any man. He took our place. He took our punishment. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus is taking our punishment for our sin. Sometimes we see these television productions. Maybe at Easter you saw they had another attempt at doing the passion, as it was called. Disappointing, I felt. Actually, Mel Gibson's passion, which caused such offence because of all that Jesus suffered, would be nearer, but probably even there, fell short of what really happened. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, he was marred more than any man. He was beaten, he was whipped, they crushed a crown of thorns on his head, they mocked him, they spat at him, they banged the thorns into his head, he had blood pouring down his body, and it says, no one's taking my life from me, I'm giving it. I am here, the centre of history, the pure and holy Son of God. And the Bible says this, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. It's phenomenal. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. No wonder it's good news. Paul says the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the good news? The good news is God sent the one he promised who bore our guilt, shame before a holy God and God dealt with our sin on the cross. That's why the cross is the symbol of Christianity. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
but the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So Jesus bore away our shame and guilt. So we've seen two things. He says the good news of Jesus, who was promised beforehand, he was born of the line of David and Abraham. Thirdly, he says he's declared to be son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead. Now this is the key and the thrilling thing. You see, we talk about a cross. We talk about someone who died. You think, well, that's the end of the story then. This is where he was proved to be a liar. Jesus Christ is an obvious liar, obvious cheat, because there he is. And he's supposed to be the Messiah, supposed to be the king, supposed to have a kingdom. But look, he's hanging on a cross, he's crying out, and God is not coming, God is not rescuing him. Messiahs do not die. That's the Jewish perspective. He's supposed to be like David. When David went out against Goliath, it's Goliath that dies, not David. And this is supposed to be like David, and he's gone out to the battle, and he's been smashed and hanging on a tree. He's a cheat, he's a liar, he's a fraud. And they're all screaming out, if you're the son of God, come down. And he's not coming down. In fact, he's shouting out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can this be good news? Well, it can only be good news if that's not the end of the story. See, Jesus looks humiliated, abandoned, bewildered, deserted, disowned. But here we are again. Here we are with people saying, I've found Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to identify with him, not only in his death, but in what? His resurrection. How come the church is still here if this crook was displayed to be a crook? If this guy says, I'm the son of God, he's dying the worst kind of death you could ever have. How can he be God? Only through the resurrection from the dead. Declared to be son of God with power through the resurrection. It's so important, dear friends, if you're our guest today, you understand what is Christianity. It's not just about being nice to one another. It's not just about social justice and world peace and people accepting. It's about this. Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. That is the message. That is the message. He has beaten death. He has overcome death. It's not just overcoming social injustice in Africa or problems in the Far East. It's about life and death. It's about the biggest issue in all our lives and history. He came to conquer death. And Jesus lives on. You see, it's not enough for us to just think, well, somehow the, the dream lives on. Sometimes it can be like that with people. You know, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. He was a phenomenal voice, amazing leader. And he was killed. But you could say, but the dream was so wonderful, the dream lives on. And that's how some people think Christianity. But well, Jesus said wonderful things. He, you know, he said, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, blessed are the meek. I mean, it's so perfect, so beautiful. You can't let that dream. Hey, the dream, the dream. Of course he died, we know he died, but the dream lives on. No, it won't do. It might do for you and me in the 21st century. It might even do for a kind of modern liberal bishop. So, oh, the dream of Jesus lives on. That would not do for Simon Peter who's a realist fisherman, 
or Matthew the tax collector and, 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 and Peter could say I left everything to follow you you said you got a kingdom you said you were the life you said you're the way you said you're the truth and there you are on the cross dying where's God? it's not enough to say to Simon Peter well let's pretend that he stayed alive because the dream lives on Peter would have said on your bike I'm out of here he's a realist He's not a 21st century philosopher. He left everything to follow Jesus, who's dead. The only explanation, dear friends, for the early church surviving the cross of Jesus and the devastation of him being trashed, totally trashed, brutalized, beaten, abandoned by God, the only reason for them saying, no, he's alive, is because he was alive. That Jesus actually conquered death. He actually is alive. And that would be our experience. That would be the night I was converted and I heard, well, he's alive. I suddenly knew. It's true. It's true. Jesus is alive. I suddenly knew it. I asked him into my life and felt it happen. I felt this life surge into me. And although my old friend said, oh, you'll be back next week. You'll be back with us drinking, partying, all that I used to do. Yeah, you'll be back. I tell you what, the life keeps living and changes us little by little by little by little. And we've got so many answers to prayer. So many demonstrations that Jesus Christ is alive. Not just resuscitated. It's not because he swooned on the cross and they hid him. And No, no, no. He has been totally dishonoured. It's not just a matter of stop breathing. He's been proved to be a crook. Now, we worship him as king. He's vindicated, he's thoroughly exonerated. Those early apostles couldn't have said, oh well, you know, I guess he has some lovely ideas. No, he's arrived from death into life. He is truly living. And you'll find every preach, every sermon in the book of Acts, the early church's sermons, Again and again. They're not talking about be nice to one another. Jesus had some wonderful ideas. Wasn't it lovely while he was with us? Every message says this. He's alive. God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses. We've seen him. He's alive. That's what Christianity is about. Death is defeated. He is truly son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. He is alive today. That's why we hear some of those who came up here saying, actually, I got healed as well. Someone's just given me, as I walked in here, a DVD of my last visit with you when someone was getting healed when I was here last with you. Jesus is alive. I was preaching in Cardiff a few months ago and there was a lady who'd been in a wheelchair for 25 years and she said, while you were preaching, you looked at me, which I didn't because I'm just looking around. But she said, when you looked at me, Jesus said to me, stand up. And I carried on preaching. At the end, I was just praying for people. I went down the line praying for people. And I prayed for her. And then I prayed for the next person. And she said, Jesus said to me, stand up. So she stood up. 25 years in a wheelchair. And she walked. And that was on a Saturday at a leading, a leader's thing. On the Sunday morning, the whole church was present because this was a, a smaller group on the Saturday. On the Sunday morning, uh, Andrew, who leads the church in Cardiff there, he said, some of you may be wondering why Maggie isn't at the end of the row in her chair. She's halfway down the, uh, the row of chairs. So he says, 
won't you come and tell us, Maggie? So heads turn around and Maggie Parker gets up and walks down and they were going, wow! People are crying. And she stood next to Andrew and she said, I didn't realise you were so short. (laughs) And she's been writing me emails. She said, I've written to the authorities saying, I don't need my disablement pension anymore. She said, I believe in Jesus, that he died for my sin, he's alive, he's completely healed me. She said, I'm wondering what they're going to think of these letters they get. I said, I don't need the disablement pension. She said, I have already walked up the Snowdon Hills. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and through many proofs, they say, as they preach in the New Testament, he demonstrates he is truly Lord. Totally vindicated and everything the Bible says would happen. Not as the Jews expected, sitting on an actual throne in Jerusalem, but the Bible says sitting at the right hand of God. Conquered death. Ruling. Sovereign. He is Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fourth point, declared to be Son of God through the resurrection of dead. Third point, fourth point, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Got to remember when Paul wrote this letter, he's writing to Christians at Rome. It's a letter to the Romans. And in those days there was another man called Caesar. One of his names was Son of God. That's what he called himself. He expected people to worship him. Another of his titles was this, Saviour of the World. That's what Caesar called himself. But now, there's another people arising who say, no, no, Jesus is the king, not Caesar. He is the true Lord. We cannot worship Caesar. And so the church was birthed with people being fed to the lions, burned at the stake. Why? Well, we know he is the Lord. Well, just say Caesar is Lord. No, no, Jesus is Lord. The church was birthed with people who wouldn't make up a story because you're going to get thrown to the lions for that story. They knew it was true. I was in the Ukraine a few months ago and there we were with some of our pastors. Pavel, who's the pastor of the church in Moscow, who in the communist era was in prison, had a gun put in his mouth, told him to deny Christ and he refused to do it. He didn't know that they would not shoot. He thought they would. But he knows Jesus is Lord. Son of God with power, our Lord and yours, Paul says. In Acts 17 it says, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, even Jesus. Let me quote one last verse from Romans. With this I finish. If you confess with your mouth as these dear friends have here this morning, that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. You'll be saved. You can step out of darkness into light, out of death into life. This is the one God promised in advance. Repeatedly promised so we would know even down to details, like they will beat him, they will gamble for his cloak. It's all written centuries before. All these details. His hands and feet will be pierced, even before crucifixion was invented. These things are there so that we know in advance and can be sure. 
Let's bow our heads in prayer.